0: And <music>
1: welcome to another edition of on the road with legal talk network this is lawrence Coletti. i'm your host for today's show which is being recorded at legal week in new york city and i've got a wonderful panel of guests joining us today and uh that's about discovery case law it's an update for 2024 we're going to get into some of the details here but first before we get into that we need to do round the table introductions and because he's closest to me and a return guest i'm going to turn the floor
2: over to David to introduce himself. Where do you work and what do you do? Lawrence, thanks for having me back on the program. Really appreciate it. My name name's David Horrigan. I'm Discovery Counsel and Legal Education Director at Relativity. And I had the honor of bringing this group together for this CLE session today. It's got a wonderful voice
1: for radio. I don't know if you guys uh, cued in on that. <laughs> yeah, it's unanimous around the table. So we'll go next to Scott. Where are
0: you from? Well, trying to follow David with the voice is awful. So <laughs> I will go. My name is Scott Milner. I'm a, a partner and Global Practice Group leader of our eData Practice at Morgan Lewis and Bockius, based in Philadelphia, um, but support our global offices.
1: I think that's a great voice game there. So don't worry about it. Makes <laughs> you <laughs> making me
0: feel less insecure. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jessica, how about you?
2: I'm Jessica Senghasen. I am senior counsel at Perkins Coie in Seattle. I help lead our uh, e-discovery services and strategy practice group.
1: How are you holding up under the time zone changes? I'm a little tired myself. Oh, it's brutal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah. Could use my like eighth coffee of the day about now.
1: All right. Well, speaking of hometown advantage, we have Justice Kennedy. Welcome.
3: Hello, Lawrence. Welcome to New York City. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. My name is Tanya R. Kennedy. I'm an associate justice of the Appellate Division, First Department, and my courthouse is on Madison Avenue. The corner of 25th Street
4: <laughs> all right last but not least we have near yeah thanks for having me uh, near of Shaw I'm the e-discovery council for uh, the Home Depot so manage uh, all things eDiscovery discovery for uh, you know your neighborhood hardware shop
1: all right, so opening salvo here, I would need a little roadmap map of what you all discussed. And so, David, you were the moderator, so I think naturally that uh, question
2: goes to you. Sure thing. We uh, we tried to make it not your average run-of-the-mill. Okay, here we go. We're going to recite the holding of all these cases. Uh, we want to make it dynamic. And we started off by talking about some of the case law data from the courts for the past decade. We talked about, and by the way, e-discovery decisions are coming up. It's a slight dip since 2021 where we had just a ton of e-discovery decisions. But uh, went over the case data from the courts, and it's going up. We then got into the meat of the case law, discussing the various cases, and uh, we tied it all together with some discussion of legal ethics at the end. And I think later in our broadcast today, we're going to talk about some of that, about uh, the importance of competence on technology. But uh, you can't go wrong with this group. We had uh, Scott and Jessica as uh, attorneys from major law firms. Nurev is, of course, with the Home Depot, a major corporation, and, of course, The View from the Bench with Justice Kennedy.
1: Excellent. Wow. You guys cover the full gamut. I love it. Let's start with the uh, the case law data, because, uh, you know, and obviously I just got the slide deck, wasn't able to attend, I'm sorry, but it uh, looks like we got attorney-client privilege came up, yeah. sanctions came up, and as an attorney myself, sanctions scare me. So right. Uh, uh, <laughs> let's
2: get into some of the takeaways from some of the case law data. What uh, what were the highlights? Well, please don't ever quote me on this, as here I go babbling on on a podcast about it, but um, you're not the only lawyer who's concerned about this. And um, Sanctions uh, are we uh, talking uh, about? Uh, sanctions, <laughs> yeah. And, no, and, and you know, as far as CLE goes, uh, my thing is always, sanctions sell seats because people want to be in there and want to hear about the sanctions but interestingly enough the single greatest cause of action in discovery cases is the failure to produce. And now, They're not monoliths, and it's not sacrosanct. You can have a failure-to-produce case that may have sanctions, may have proportionality issues, but not turning over your stuff, Lawrence, is the biggest issue that we've seen from the case law data. And uh, eDiscovery Assistant is the research tool I use to put that all together, and uh, the team over there is great. Kelly Twigger, Daryl, Martha, the the whole group over there is great. And um, so we use that data to frame our discussion.
1: All right. So this was in the news quite a bit. So AI and hallucinations, at least it was in the legal news. Somebody got into trouble because <laughs> he used ChatGPT to formulate a legal argument. turned out to be not great. And so I wanted to bring that up. And I think this is the case. Is it M- Mata versus Avianca? Is that the name Correct. of the Correct. Mata v. Avianca, Inc. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's get a little breakdown of that one because I think that one's fairly interesting. And uh, yeah. ChatGPT. I know I use it for writing, but I don't trust it entirely just yet because I've seen it come up with some absolutely incorrect terminology and send me some bogus links. I'm like, that is a bogus link.
2: So, And I feel bad about that. Yeah, I think Scott and Rob did a great job because Nirav was, of course, he's the in House Counsel. And we had this case as well as United States v. Cohen, which is uh, former President Trump's former lawyer since disbarred. But it was a similar issue. Michael Cohen looked up the cases. And Michael Cohen is a former lawyer. I think his lawyer Said, okay, he's a lawyer. He knows what he's doing. So I think Scott and Nurov had a great back and forth on how much do you trust it if your client's giving you the case law. Uh, so I would turn to Scott on this one. And see what you think.
0: Well, we, yeah, we talked about how, how is generative AI, AI generally impacting the legal profession. And one of the things we talked about again, as uh, David said, is how do you verify? How do you validate? And, and we talked a lot about legal education, training, training, training. Put together uh, parameters for having to actually analyze what you get from whether it be a client, a machine, a bot, anything of before I turn that over to an adversary and obviously before I turn it over to the court. And one of our lessons learned is take a couple factors, one being the trust by Verify, two being legal education to train on what you need to do to quality control, quality assurance, and validation from the tools, and three, make sure you got client approval to use any of these tools before you start doing that work.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think as a client, um... We expect our council uh, to be up to date on the technology. We expect them to uh, spend their time and our money efficiently. And if now that involves using Gen AI for research. But again, it's always trust but verify. We're gonna say that over and over. You know, the, the actual primary goal of an AI is to not disappoint the user. The AI, ChatGPT, very rarely will come back and say, oh, I don't know. So they'll keep doing whatever it thinks to make you happy. That's actually the primary goal of AI. And so therefore, so, it you know, that's where the hallucinations came from.
1: Well, quick follow up on that. I mean, how important is that? And I mean, me, um, if I was in, if I was in active practice right now and I was deploying AI, I would certainly mention it, you know, in, you know, just the you know, upfront talk when people say, sometimes we use this tool, we, we check and verify everything, but it's a tool that we use to try to speed things along. And so I guess how serious is that to know that that's a tool being used uh, in your legal research?
4: I think it's important right now because it's still new technology. I don't ask my outside counsel, do they use Lexus or Westlaw or Google? Like, I, I, right. I don't micromanage that level. I think because this is a hot topic, because of the Avianca case, it's on top of mind. Um, once everything gets settled, I think it'll just be another tool that we expect them to use, but we don't ask them.
0: Yeah, but, but know your court, right? We've, as we talked about in, the, uh, in the, the panel, there are certain jurisdictions and judges that have issued standing orders requiring disclosure if you're using generative AI tools um, in pleadings and other disclosures. So you have to know where you're, uh, you're litigating it as well.
1: I want to uh, get a little comment about candor to the court from Justice Kennedy. So How does that land with you if somebody, and now we've had some issues come up, with a hallucination on that. I mean, how, I guess, how aware of that, of its use, do you want to be when, uh, when attorneys come before you?
3: Well, I'm going to answer it this way. That hasn't really come before my court, but I talked about a case that uh, came out of Brooklyn Surrogates Court where there was an attorney who submitted reply papers in a contested probate proceeding. And I think it was about five or six of the cases were non-existent. And so the judge indicated that more likely than not that came from generative AI. And so now there's going to be an order to show cause for the attorney to appear before the court as to why sanctions should not be imposed. But you know, certainly, attorneys have a duty of candor before the court. And I'm going to take a different viewpoint. I didn't say this in the panel, but this is a podcast, (laughs) and I'm sure all of my panelists know about this, there was an open letter that was issued, I believe it was last month, by a judge named Scott Shagel from the Louisiana Fifth uh, Circuit uh, of of Appeals. And he talked about perhaps, you know, his colleagues should refrain from, you know, (laughs) prohibiting... The use of generative AI or even regula- regulating it, because you already have ethical rules and rules of professional conduct. And certainly, I would never tell a judge what to do, but I could sort of agreed with that, because, you know what, a lawyer is the captain of his or her ship when it comes to how to prosecute or defend a claim. And so, to me, they're in the best position in how to leverage the technology, but in order to properly leverage it, you have to be educated. You have to know the platform, knows how it works. So I think that's where the focus should be. It should be on education and just making attorneys aware of the ethical obligations when you use generative AI. I absolutely agree with Justice Kennedy about the importance of
2: education and using this technology and generative AI is certainly the sexy topic of the day, right? Everyone wants to talk about it. Everyone wants to use it. But I think what's important to remember too is that we've been using AI and e-discovery for years now. So while generative AI is, you know, a paradigm changer for the practice of law for for all aspects of life, and we're going to find it in, in everyday life. The fundamentals of how we approach and validate and use generative AI isn't that different from what we're already doing.
1: All right. I want to lighten the mood. Yeah.
4: <laughs>
1: so, well, lighten the mood. I want to talk about uh, emojis ruining somebody's yeah. return on investment. Oh, love so, it. Can we talk about that? This is the uh, the bed, bath, and beyond case. And so could somebody give me the skinny on that one? So apparently somebody's it's moon, smiley face ruined today.
0: I, it
2: expended my horizons. Um,
0: <laughs> <clears throat> it, it's the
2: um, uh, To the moon, as they say. Real quickly on the fact pattern, Bed Bath and Beyond, unfortunately, has fallen under hard times. And um, uh, Ryan Cohen of Chewy fame and GameStop fame became an investor. MSA, it was either I think it was CNBC ran a news article critical of Bed Bath and Beyond, saying, "Hey, financial outlook does not look great." So uh, Mr. Cohen sent a tweet responding to the tweet, saying, "Well, at least her shopping cart is full." And there was a smiling moon emoji. Unbeknownst to me, that is also known as the shoot the moon emoji, meaning the stock was going to shoot the moon. And um, what happened is, unbeknownst to those Twitter followers, now ex-followers, Mr. Cohen was clandestinely selling his shares in Bed Bath & Beyond to the tune of a $68 million profit. Well, other people lost a bunch of money. So it comes out in the litigation, and the court basically rules that it not rejects Mr. Cohen's argument that says, um, Emojis can't be actionable because they have so many different meanings. Court didn't buy it. Court didn't buy it, so they said pump and dump? They didn't say pump and dump, but they did say the emoji could come into evidence as being indicative of the pump and dump. This scares me because I send emojis to my friends a lot, and I just uh, I think I'm going to get in some trouble. Well, on the panel, I asked both uh, I asked Justice Kennedy if she had seen any in court filings, and as well to <laughs> Jessica, Scott, and Nirov, um, how they deal with them.
1: Justice Kennedy, how much trouble would a lawyer be in if they sent you an emoji and any kind of paperwork going to the bench?
3: Now, now, now. (laughs) (laughs) You know, listen, I'm in the appellate court, so there's a certain way that you have to present to the court, Lawrence, when we're talking about what is the issue presented. You know, I highly doubt that that would be used if it wasn't an issue in the case. And and that hasn't come before me yet.
1: Okay, fair enough.
3: Fair (laughs) Fair enough.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right, now I understand there's an important announcement before we close it out that has to do with continuing education for lawyers. And David, I know you want to cue this up. It's a little bit complicated. And and Justice Kennedy, I know this is a a passion of yours. So I'm
2: going to go ahead and hand the floor to you, David, to set that up. Sure. In 2012, the American Bar Association added comment eight to ABA model rule of professional conduct one by one. One point one, I should say. And that is that lawyers have a duty to uh, keep up with the advantages in technology and the risks associated with it. And I was on a panel uh, just down the street from here in 2012. One of my co-panelists had a slide, and now we're dating ourselves. Um, There was a picture of a hamburger, and it said, where's the beef? And the idea was that This thing isn't even part of the rule. It's buried in the comments. Nobody's going to care. Well, what happened is state bars all over the country followed this and put it in their rules and now it is really a bedrock of what you need to know and someone who's been on the legal talk network many times bob Ambrosi, does a great job of following those developments so you can follow in law sites what he's got but justice kennedy has been one of the champions of education on these issues and uh, so i think she's got some inspiring words for us on that one
3: I think you give me too much credit, you know, I'm, I'm not sure about a champion, but it just seems to me, particularly a lot of these discovery motions and sanctions, it's because of a lack of education. So, for example, you don't know the proper platform, you don't know how to use the platform. Um, if you don't know the technology and who's the proper custodians, well, there's an issue with search terms, et cetera, et cetera. And so... To me, I say this all the time, that everything rises and falls on education or the lack thereof.
0: Yeah, I'll just comment. I think that's right. I think that's really where the e-discovery profession has its time to shine, right? Before, we were always thrown in the back of the the, the the halls or behind the doors, like, just do this. But with, the, I think, the comment heightening the need to be education uh, educated from a technical perspective, know how it works, know how to use it, We're that team, we've been that group of professionals for years that know how to embrace technology, know the benefits, know the risks, know how to uh, validate. And I think that's critical um, to how we are now a huge industry and a huge group of talented professionals.
3: And I learned from them as well.
0: Well,
1: it looks like we've reached the end of the road for this episode, but I want to thank our esteemed panel of guests for joining us. Thank you so
2: much. Thank you thank for having you us. Nice to See you, Lawrence.
1: And also, thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please rate us favorably in your favorite podcasting app. Until next time, I'm Lawrence Coletti, and you've been listening to On the Road with Legal Talk Network. If you'd like more information about what you have heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com